The novel coronavirus isn't the only thing that's been on a tear during this pandemic. Housing sales have surprised many watchers, with more being bought than originally expected, and that's driven up costs in many markets across the country. And now getting into the market or upgrading has become even further out of reach. I'm Adam Toy. And I'm Dave McIver, and this is Why. Housing is very tied up with uh, my sense of security. And my mother was a renter her entire life, and I've seen sort of the insecurity that comes from that. 31-year-old Anita Min has been hoping to buy a home with her partner for years, but she's not seeing much they can afford. Even though the formerly red-hot Greater Vancouver area has cooled in recent months, it's still expensive. The average home price, more than $1.1 million. I think the question of housing affordability plays a lot into whether or not to have kids because housing is an expense. Children are an expense, childcare is an expense. All of these things are related. Historically low mortgage rates, a race for space, and a rush to get into the market ahead of tougher borrowing rules have all fueled a surge in home prices during the pandemic. And it's not limited to major urban centers. Prices are up about 30% across Canada, bringing bidding wars and buying frenzies to cottage country and smaller cities like Hamilton, Halifax, and Moncton. A million dollars for an average home in Vancouver and housing prices on the rise across the country. Is it time for Canada to become a country of renters? If we were to push a lot of people right now into renting, there would be wealth inequality created by that. And, and that's a trend that you see in European cities like Germany, uh, like hmm. the Netherlands, like places where the majority of people rent, uh, you know, uh, people just have a more difficult time saving that money into creating wealth because Property is such an effective way to build wealth. That's videographer Yu Tae Lee. My passion project is uh, a YouTube channel called About Here, uh, where I put a lot of my videos, uh, video essays on uh, any issue like that is related to, uh, you know, city politics and city policies. Uh, this is stuff like housing to transit to underground streams, you know, uh, just the fun geeky stuff around urban issues. Your last couple of uh, videos really caught my attention on, on your YouTube page, talking about so, some of the housing challenges that in, that are in Vancouver. And I, uh, it, I mean, housing uh, prices have, or, or housing, the housing market was surprisingly hot through the pandemic. Um, as people try to change their li living circumstances. Mm. But um, I, I'm wondering if you can share your perspective being in Vancouver. What's it like trying to uh, live and, and find and afford housing, just keeping a roof over your head, uh, it, you know, in, in, in Canada's most populous West Coast city? Oh my gosh. I mean, where to begin? Vancouver certainly seems to be a, uh, definitely a city where the housing crisis does seem to hit a bit of a crux. Um, I mean, maybe I'll start. Uh, I know this might be a podcast, so it might be painful for your listeners, but uh, so let's start with my room here. If you can, I'll describe it. It's like just like a small little shoebox, <laughs> a basement suite that I rent uh, here in Vancouver uh, at a price that is uh, probably too much for a space of this size. Uh, but, uh, you know, you mentioned the pandemic and how that's had a an interesting effect on property prices, especially in, you know, from my understanding, single family residential areas. Uh, but I, I would kind of remind people like, like the housing crisis has been here long before the pandemic and in spaces, uh, uh, cities like Vancouver and, and Toronto, especially uh, property values uh, were, uh, you know, just 
rising at an astonishing rate. Uh, you know, gosh, in the just in the in the last decade, I think 2016 was really uh, a quite a notable year for Vancouver. I mean, property mm-hmm. prices have always been expensive here to some extent, but like I remember 2016 being like a year where it just it took like a double digit kind of jump. <laughs> so you know, it, uh, it it's kind of nuts. And I'm and I'll admit for for someone like myself who's uh, you know kind of on the cusp now where I like like I can definitely rent uh, you know somewhat comfortably. Right, putting a roof over my head is not like. Uh, a, a huge struggle but now that i'm you know getting more let's say older uh, i i am thinking about like you know uh, well can i uh, should i be uh purchasing a property should i you know a- will i ever be able to a- a- and frankly in a city like vancouver uh that dream seems uh more or less like a pipe dream <laughs> if i can mm. put it that way uh it, it it really uh you know um i i think Last time I checked, uh, the property prices here on average in Metro Vancouver were about 11 times the average income of uh, someone living in Metro Vancouver. And at that price, uh, you know, unless you're taking out huge loans or you're getting a lot of help from mom and dad, uh, you're you're kind of, you know, uh, you're, you're out of luck. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Uh, I'm looking at some numbers from the National Bank of Canada from early May, and it shows that mm. uh, the medium, median home price for all dwellings, so this is condos and single detached and uh, and semi-detached. The median home price in Vancouver was $1.1 million. Meanwhile, the median annual income was $85,000 in Vancouver, which, as you said, that's, you know, 11, 12 X, uh, for that. And, and, uh, you know, using, uh, National Bank of Canada's, um, housing affordability monitor, uh, you know, as you said, 2016, 2017, uh, the number of months it would take to save a minimum down payment on a house in Vancouver jumped Mm -hmm. from, it looks like around 70 to 360 months. So that's, that sounds a about right. Yeah. yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. 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 No, it's great. Uh, thanks for the reminder, yeah. Adam. It was a lot of fun talking about how uh, yeah depressing the housing market outlook is for people like me. But hey, you know what? I'm here for it. I'm here to talk about it. You were saying that uh, Vancouver's housing crisis has been around since before the pandemic hit last year. What have the elected representatives in City Hall done to help or hinder the problem? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Like uh, from City Hall. Uh, okay. Well. Let me zoom out a little bit because I'm, you know, with any issue like housing, like as soon as you go into like who's to blame or you know who's, you know who's really pulling the levers for the housing market, you'll you'll like everyone will disagree or at least you'll half the room will disagree with you and the other half will be like rah rah go Ute. So I, I like I'll start by saying that the, you know there are many many factors and actors behind the housing crisis here in Vancouver and. Uh, uh, there, you know, uh, some could argue that it goes all the way back to, you know, uh, 1917 or 18, where the uh, the original city bylaw was made. But uh, you know, talking from specifically city hall's perspective, the local government's perspective, uh, this is the case uh, in cities, uh, you know, well across North America, is that uh, cities do place a limit on the supply of housing that's being built, uh, and that's through uh, something known as the zoning bylaw. If you kind of like, you know shift your perspective on a bit, like the fact that there are zoning bylaws that do put limits on how much housing is uh, 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 produced in a city, uh, that does create a limit on the supply, right? And it sends a signal to the market that this is a commodity uh, that is uh, uh, a, a, a scarce resource to some extent, one that you know local governments re- regulate. So, so I think that uh, local governments do play a key role in the housing crisis in that they uh, 
kind of hold the the keys to the, the, they are the gatekeepers to to uh, more housing supply in cities. Uh, here in Vancouver, uh, it is kind of frustrating personally because uh, the, the city's uh, strategy for uh, well, I guess for much of the last several decades has been to really concentrate housing developments into core areas uh, that are uncontroversial. So these are former mm. industrial sites. These are, you know, like waterfront industrial properties uh, along like uh, uh, SkyTrain stations. And so these, you know, few properties, they'll like, you know, build like a 20, 30 story condominium. But right. then there's like 80% of the land in Vancouver that's still just single family houses. They never change in density. Uh, and, you know, uh, kind of just like, you know, thinking about it broadly, you, you, you think like, oh, yeah, is that really like the best way we can add housing in a city is to like just have these small points of incredible density and leaving everything else the same? Uh, I would disagree personally, but, mm. you know, to some extent, there is like there are politics at play here, right? Like sure. when there are established neighborhoods in Vancouver in these single family zones uh, that uh, are quite protective about the, the look and feel of their neighborhoods. And, you know, I, and I don't want to, you know, uh, invalidate those concerns. I think like development and change do bring a lot of, uh, uh, you know, um, I, I guess, uh, uh, what's the word, not insecurities, but like uncertainty, I suppose, uh, mm -hmm. uh, to, a, to a neighborhood. Uh, but, but by kind of uh, listening to those voices a little too much over the last several decades, you do end up with this pattern where you have housing concentrated in just select little areas <laughs> and not much really being built anywhere else. Yeah, and it's, it's fascinating if you walk through mm. uh, Vancouver or, or mm. even Tor Toronto in some places oh, <laughs> where you've got these, these you know, dozens of stories of high-rise condos uh, and you walk two blocks down the street and you're down to single single family, you know, one two story houses, and it, and it's it's a rather stark change, even just as being a pedestrian or riding your oh, bike or driving through there. Exactly, I think one of my favorite examples is actually in Toronto. Uh, if you're familiar with the neighborhood, it's called North York. Mm -hmm. It's uh, 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 right on top of a, a subway line, and it is yeah, like as you described, like 30, 40 story buildings, and literally across the street, it's just like a sea of single family houses. It's really striking when you see it uh, uh, on uh, on a map, or I guess not on a map, but like kind of in satellite view on Google Maps, which is something you do if you're like an urban planning geek like me. <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, you know, uh, maybe it, uh, if you don't mind me kind of uh, bringing some uh, you know terminology to this, like the, yeah. this phenomenon that we're talking about, it's called the missing middle. Uh, and uh, it, it really is sort of this phenomenon that happens in cities where there is a ton of development pressure that gets funneled into select core areas, uh, effectively to sort of appease the politics, the local politics of the general more like affluent residential neighborhoods uh, that you find in these single family zoned areas, uh, uh, which results in this kind of uh, aesthetic of, you know, towers, right next to single family houses. So if home ownership is largely outside of the reach of the average income of your city, Vancouver, renting remains the option for most Vancouverites to live in that city. That begs the question of if every single person necessarily needs to own their own home or can there be ways of thinking about renting as a way of life like in some European countries? Many would say that uh, this kind of uh, obsession that North America has with using housing as a uh, wealth creation uh, asset mm. is a huge driver behind our cr housing crisis, right? People here 
I mean, kind of culturally almost to a certain extent, but also via government policy from the federal and provincial governments, uh, people are encouraged to purchase their property and, uh, uh, and over time use that as their nest egg, right? A lot of people, a lot of boomers that bought houses in the 60s and 70s, those lucky people, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, I could have used another word, but, uh, you know, they, they, they're doing, they're, they are millionaires now, right? Because they bought housing and they invested in it and they were able to create wealth. Uh, that's great for wealth creation, but when it comes to housing, I mean, housing isn't just, you know, an asset, right? It's not a stock for, for, <laughs> for people. It's, I mean, it's an essential need. It's a roof over your head. It's shelter. Uh, and, and I think the, uh, you know, what many have argued is that the more and more we've kind of treated housing as this sort of wealth creation asset, this stock, uh, it's created like a bit of a frenzy around housing and a lot of speculation, a lot of treating housing, not so much as like an essential need, but as, you know, a speculative investment. Um, you know, this is where we have, you know, shadow flippers coming in that just buy a condo pre-sale and then sell it before it's even built. Uh, where, you know, uh, many would say like foreign investors come into the picture. This is where uh, REITs and banks, <laughs> you know, are buying up property, right? Like it's become a very good investment. Uh, but at the end of the day, housing is like an essential need. And, and the, 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 the main difference between owning and renting a house, to get back to your original question, is that people who rent uh, do not see housing as an investment. When you rent, you're paying for a service. I like to describe it as like when you rent, you're treating your housing like a gym membership, right? Mm -hmm. you're, just, you're just seeing that money go out the door, but you are getting a service in return. You're able to live in a, you know, a, a, a place. And uh, the argument has been that if enough people, if the majority of people are just treating housing as a service, they're not treating it as a wealth creation asset, uh, you, you might end up stabilizing the housing market. Uh, and a, an example that uh, uh, I kind of point to in a video I've made uh, is Germany where uh, more than 50% of the country rents their housing in places like Berlin. They, uh, I think it's something like 81% of the city are renters. Uh, they have a relatively stable housing market. Uh, the, the general population isn't as interested in purchasing their homes. It's not sort of seen as, you know, one of the things you have to do in life. Uh, and, uh, and as a result, uh, there is a lot more uh, uh, progressive policies around renting in Germany, uh, supports for renters, uh, protections for renters. Uh, mm. and, and that's a whole other can of worms of like whether those protections for renters are a great thing or not. But, you know, like I, I think that you kind of really just do a, see a different dynamic around housing in countries like that, uh, you know, and others in Europe, for sure. As you were describing the different mm. ideas behind uh, or the different perspectives on, pro on, on, mm. on housing is the speculative part of it. To me, it's, it's hmm. as you were describing it, it kind of sounded like um, uh, how Bitcoin is being used as a speculative asset, right? Like <laughs> it, was originally, it, yeah. it was originally put in as a, or you know, conceived as, right. as, this, as, this, as this currency, but right. now people are treating it as a, as a, as a speculative as asset. It's, it, it, it's jumped from like you know, single thousands of dollars in value to right. tens of thousands of dollars of value and drops again. Now that's across the world and, and many different players in that field, mm -hmm. but that's one example of a speculative asset. Meanwhile, yeah. for this, this utility, this, this, this right. service that you're talking about, I'm thinking rideshare where people, you know, can, can run it, can, can get transportation to where they need to go as if it's a car, but not have to own the car. They just pay for the service as somebody drives around. I, I think you bring up a, a 
a couple of great examples. I think, yeah, with Bitcoin, it is absolutely similar to housing in the fact that it was conceived as a utility and now is being used as a speculative asset. And and then, yeah, with Uber and Lyft and with, it's kind of, it's interesting. Like, like yeah, it makes a lot more sense, I think, for people to, to take, you know, services like Uber and Lyft because, you know, uh, a, buying a car is not an investment, <laughs> you know, buying right. a car, it's a depreciating asset, right? So, you know, uh, uh, you know, people like, so the car industry doesn't have like, all, like nobody's like buying tons of vehicles overseas because they, they think they're going to sell it later at a higher price. Like it th- just doesn't work that way. <laughs> I think uh, if, yeah, like to your point, like if more and more people treated housing that way, um, you know, uh, it would, definitely uh, stabilize the housing market to some extent. Uh, you know, I think like, frankly, is like, housing is always going to have some amount of like, uh, speculation and wealth, you know, creation, you know, tied to it, like, mm-hmm. at the end of the day, like, uh, what, what, what really is creating the value is the land, right? Like, if you own land, there, it, it is, you know, kind of by definition, almost like a scarce resource. They're not uh, making any know. more of it. That's, that's not how making... the saying goes, right? <laughs> Last time I checked, I mean, maybe there's some magma plumes in the Pacific Ocean <laughs> that creates an island every now and then. But like, yeah, other than that, like we have a limited quantity and in cities where, the, uh, you know, like, especially like Vancouver with geographic constraints, like there is a limited quantity. It's always like if people buy land, there's going to, the value will be there uh, and it will increase. Um, but I think when it comes to housing and, you know, a, a roof over your head, uh, this sort of, oh gosh, interplay between local governments kind of restricting the supply, but then culturally and federal governments and provincial governments really incentivizing people to buy their housing uh, does kind of create this like vicious circle of like just the prices going higher and higher and people treating it increasingly and increasingly like a Bitcoin. Your The latest video on your YouTube page uh, is called, Can We Rent Our Way Out of the Housing Crisis? You've talked, touched on some of those points right now, but I want you to give away the ending mm. can, and I encourage everybody to go and watch it, but can, you, can we rent our way out of this housing crisis? <laughs> okay, spoiler alert. Uh, I, I feel conflicted. I, I think uh, to some extent, yes. I think if uh, we... Uh, I, 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 to some extent, if we encourage uh, and provide incentives and uh, policy protections for more renters uh, and uh, kind of shift away from an ownership society to more of a renting society, uh, that will have uh, that will that that has an effect of cooling the housing market. And I could see that if, uh, you know, the federal government, uh, you know, sort of tickets foot off the, you know, the gas pedal of home ownership a bit, you know, just a little bit, uh, you know, uh, th- that could help our housing market be, uh, you know, in the long term, be a bit more stable. Um, not even going to say more affordable. I'm going to say stable because that's what we're really looking for here. We like, like by with all this speculation, like, you know, the other sort of foot that drops in that is like, you also have housing crashes, right? Like mm-hmm. you have yeah. like huge increases, but you also have huge crashes. So, so I think that there's my, uh, uh you know, <laughs> long-winded answer, sorry, uh, to that question. But, um, with this video, I do touch on another side of the story that I think is equally relevant and to me uh, uh, ended up making me kind of quite conflicted about this whole issue, uh, which is uh, kind of surprisingly the issue of wealth inequality. Uh, you know, like we we talked about it, like home ownership traditionally has been a very effective vehicle to building wealth here in North America. And we have a very strong middle class that owns housing uh, that are, you know, going to become millionaires in a city like Vancouver. Uh, And, um, you know, uh, uh, by kind of 
if we were to push a lot of people right now into renting, that there would be wealth inequality created by that. And, and that's a trend that you see in European cities like Germany, uh, uh, like mm. the Netherlands, like places where the majority of people rent, uh, you know, uh, people just have a more difficult time saving that money into creating wealth because property is such an effective way to build wealth. Uh, you know, not having that option, you know, means you, you kind of, yeah, people just don't have as many uh, uh, resources to creating their own wealth. And in the long run, that does tend to create wealth inequality uh, in Germany. You know, you uh, and you know, a lot of these like kind of progressive places in Europe, they have like a, a really wealthy aristocratic class of people that own a lot of the land and the majority of the country rents and doesn't really pass on a lot of wealth to future generations. This is Why is produced by me, Dave McIver, and Adam Toy. It's a national radio show and a podcast. You can reach us by email, thisiswhy at globalnews.ca and on Twitter at thisiswhy. If you like what you hear and want to hear more, make sure you subscribe to This Is Why so you never miss an episode. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcast. And if you like what you're hearing, tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Wear a mask and get vaccinated. We'll see you soon. Season of 911 on a new night. Thursday, March 14th on Global. Stream on Stack TV.